You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All right. Well, welcome to week number five of how Christianity saves civilization and can do so again. Is this not fun stuff or what? (laughs) The only thing is, is every now and then when I'm doing this, when I'm working on it, I'm like, wow, this is so interesting. And then I always hear Pastor Mark saying, yeah, but so what, David? You know, what's what's the application? I'm like, Okay, but it's just really interesting. I think it. I think apologetically, there's there's uh, there's a lot here. Um, let's dive into our new session tonight, and I just want to give a shout out tonight to uh, Timothy for making. Yeah, no, I know you're. You don't want that's what that's okay. You made all the coffee, all the tea, and everything. So, thank you for that. Yeah. Okay, so the big idea of the class, just to keep that in front of us, the big idea of our class is a very simple idea, but an important idea. The extraordinary impact of Christianity is seen in the fact that you don't notice it. Um, I was listening to somebody this week. Um, I was listening to to Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, the other Tom Holland, who's actually the, the main thinker on this thesis. And uh, Tom Holland was was just remarking about how how much of how we see the world really is shaped by the evolution that took place two thousand years ago. Uh, ideas that we think are natural or obvious or universal, um, ideas that we think oh it's always been this way, is actually shows how deeply this Christian revolution has shaped the world. This is the air that we breathe. It's all around us, but we don't notice it. The values we hold near and dear are not, in fact, universal. They're not found everywhere all the time, and I'm hoping you guys are realizing that. They're not self-evident, but they're a product of a revolution that took place 2,000 years ago through Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. And in this class, I think we've looked at a few fun things so far. Uh, We looked at uh, the idea of equality, the inherent dignity of every human being, and we saw how how the ideas of human dignity, equality, and even human rights are not self-evident, but instead are rooted in a biblical um, view of the Imago Dei that we are fearfully and wonderfully made in God's image. Then we looked at the ideas of family and marriage and sex, and we discovered that many of the assumptions about what constitutes a family, what a husband ought to be like, how we should see children and how we should take care of children, all these assumptions that we think are self-evident, of course everybody believes this, is not so universal. Paul's call for husbands to love their wives and to sacrifice themselves for their, for their wives is actually a revolutionary statement, especially against the background of a Greco-Roman world where women were seen as, as, as deformed males and where the paterfamilias had very little... Well, it's not like he didn't love his wife, but he didn't have to. That was not part of the vision of marriage. And then last week, we shifted gears and we talked at two different but related assumptions about society. And we looked at the dignity of work. And then we talked about the appeal of humanity. And so where does this idea that work is actually a good thing come from? And it was so cool on Saturday to hear Paul Stevens laying out the vision for work and God's calling in our lives to work. Man, that was, that was just awesome on the weekend. So this idea of the dignity of work, the appeal of humility, where do these come from? Is work a good thing? <laughs> well, it wasn't to the Romans where the highest ideal was leisure and idleness. But for Christians, there is dignity to work. Why? Because God worked. God works. Same with the, uh, the value of humility. Everybody loves a humble person, right? We love, hum- we love humility. But humility as a virtue doesn't exist 
until, oh, I don't know, 2,000 years ago. And so what was the event that, that suddenly made something like uh, humility a virtue to be pursued, a virtue to be upheld? Well, it's because of the cross. We appreciate the humble because of the cross. Because a cross forever linked together humiliation and greatness. So tonight, what we're going to do is going to be uh, hopefully a lot of fun. We're going to look at progress. I'll do the Canadian pronunciation, progress. But for you Americans online, it's progress, okay? Progress, that's what I mean by that, so, so just you know. Um, and our framing text, I think, well, there's lots of texts that we could look at, but I thought we'd look at, um, at Psalm, um, Psalm 90. It's a well-known psalm. Psalm 90 um, says this. It says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you have formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as, as, as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and, and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you and our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble, and soon they are gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to number our days. We pray that uh, we would walk circumspectly and make the best use of time, the time that you have given us. We pray that um, the chronos time, the TikTok time that you've given us would be embraced as kairos time, as, as fullness of time, as, as, as time where we can experience your presence. And we pray that you would speak to us tonight and you give us eyes to see, and you give us a heart to receive from you. Grant us a courage to respond to whatever you teach us tonight. Establish the work of our hands, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a fellow named Theodore Parker, who was an anti-slavery campaigner. And in the 19th century, in 1853, he said, the, he wrote these words, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And the idea that this fellow Parker and, and other fellows in the 20th century, such as Martin Luther King, we're going to return to him, uh, is the idea is, what's the assumption is this, is that tomorrow can be better than today. Tomorrow can be better than today. And that somehow this world that we live in, this universe that where we find ourselves, is, is always progressing towards something that is good. That given enough time, things will get better. Things will always improve. Now, you've heard the expression, you can't stop progress. You've heard that expression before? Can't stop progress. What I want you to do is just around your tables, just for a few minutes, just, just to ask each other the question, do you believe that? You can't stop progress. Do you agree with this? And what does this mean for the world and for you? So do you believe that you can't stop progress, that, that the world is inevitably going to progress? And what does that mean? Okay. So just take a moment, it's kind of a, a little bit abstract, but I think you can talk about that. We'll pause the recording. And let, me, uh, uh, let me hear from you. What, um, you can't stop progress, yeah? Do you agree? 
Some people try. Unions try. Unions try. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? But in Alberta, you cannot stop progress. I know, yes. <laughs> wow, yeah, okay, so. That's a rough province to say that in, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you want to know what I mean by progress. That's what those guys were asking. I said, well, it could be whatever you want it to be. Yeah. Well, the idea of progress is the idea that the world is improving or, yeah, improving. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Hey, I'll ask the questions here. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so the idea that, that things at least are perceived to be better than they were before and that there is a movement in history that is kind of an unwritten law to say that this is what's going to happen over time. Something like that. Yeah, I mean, what we will be talking about is, is uh, you know, mo modern liberalism, whether it be small L or even capital L liberalism, has as an assumption is that the world, um, over time, will get better with new innovations, new technology, uh, new knowledge, with the more knowledge that we have, that given enough knowledge, we can make this place a better world, you know, better um, in terms of... Um, um, life expectancy, um, better care in hospitals, medical treatments, and those sorts of things, right? That things are, will, will improve. But this idea is funny because when I say you can't stop progress and I mention progress, my guess is that every one of you has a sense of what I meant until you actually had to dive in a little bit deeper. It's like, huh, wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean by that? This idea of progress, Mike, you got the uh, recording going in? Yep, cool. Uh, I'm, I'm not used to not uh, hearing the, I don't hear the lady going, recording in progress, yeah. Um, the Zoom lady. This idea of progress runs really deep in our modern world. It's the idea that things ought to get better. And often one of the assumptions is, in order for things to get better, we need to let go of the past. We need to get rid of things that inhibit progress. Um, and so, I mean, sometimes the assumption is uh, we need to get rid of ideas that maybe be damaging to progress. So we need to get rid of, you know, um, maybe even monuments or statues of people who represented ideas that are maybe antiquated and no longer applicable. And so we need to maybe remove these statues or rename buildings. Or so, you know, so you have the example in Toronto of... Um, um, the renaming of Ryerson University, what used to be Ryerson Polytechnical Institute. Um, Ryerson was named after who? Edgerton Ryerson, um, who, uh, who lived in the 19th century. He was a Canadian educator, author, editor, Methodist minister, and a prominent con contributor to the Canadian public school system. And yet, People looked at some of his ideas and they said, well, some of your ideas are suspect. And so as a result, we are going to, in the name of progress, remove your name from the university and come up with a very beautiful, creative, insipid name, <laughs> Toronto Metropolitan University. That's the new name of Ryerson. Um, but in this world, there's an assumption that history is always improving. And the, the, the goal is to be in the right side of history, that time is headed somewhere, and that somewhere is a better place than where things are now, that things are just going to continually get better. Now this is an assumption that is pretty pervasive 
in the modern world. But we pause and we ask the question that we always ask in this class. But where do these ideas come from? Is this idea of progress, has it always been around? Well, what seems to be so self-evident is not in fact that self-evident. For much of human history, it was assumed, it was assumed that the past was better than the present. Do you know that? The good old days, yeah, yeah, that's right, the good old days. No, it was, it was the assumption that if you were to look for wisdom, if you were to look even for knowledge, knowledge was found in the past. That's where knowledge was found. Not in the future, not in what future technologies may be formed and, you know, what may be lying around the corner. Our hope was found in the past. And that carried on for, um, I would say, it changed in the 16th century. In the uh, Greco-Roman world, the assumption was that the past was the realm of the gods and their activity, and so it was therefore considered the golden age. In fact, for the Greeks, it's a little, it's a little bit complicated because the Greeks had a really interesting understanding of time. For, for the Greeks, for the most part, not all, but for the, for, for, for the most part, the Greek understanding of time and progress it was, was the idea that, that history was circular, not linear. That's where those weird Greeks, um, yeah, because it was, it was that, that, that uh, history would, would be um, a series of circles. It would re repeat itself. Um, it would move, but it would be circular. And so if you're a Greek, I mean, one of the, one of the advantages of the Greek way of thinking is that you would know, because if, if, if history is circular, you would know that, that certain expressions like groovy and hip, and certain styles like the mullet would come back again, which is not a bad thing, right? Right? Right, it's hip and groovy, okay. Now, the Bible, the Bible offers a different view of history and time, okay? For the Bible, history is not a repeating thing, but it's an arrow moving onwards. Moves onwards, downwards, and then finally upwards. At the consummation of all history, when Jesus returns. And so if you read the Bible, you'll see this. You'll see that this, this view of time runs through the Bible. The Israelites were moving from slavery to the promised land. We read in the prophets that out of darkness a light would dawn, that jubilee would be declared and slaves would be released. We, we read through the Old Testament that where we come across the, the expression, on that day, on that day, on that day justice would roll like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. The book of Amos. On that day the long-expected Messiah would come and bring peace to where there was strife. And yes, this world is filled with suffering, but when Jesus comes, the kingdom of God is inaugurated and would give us the assurance that in the end, all will be well. Okay, this is a biblical understanding of time. Is that history is moving towards the place where at the end of history, all shall be well. And so the, uh, the biblical idea is that all history is moving towards something that's better when all will be made right. And my point to you tonight is that this view of history, this idea that of progress where all shall be well in the end is an idea that runs very deep within our culture. It has become the air that we breathe. It's a revolution of time that has shaped our world. But how we see progress in the world has changed, okay? We've, today, it, we still believe in progress, but it's changed a little bit. We believe in progress in time. We believe in the consummation, well, the Christians believe in the consummation of all things. 
But what we see in our culture is this, and we have to get this, what we see is the idea of progress is still there. The source behind progress has been removed, which is God. And so what we have is an idea of progress, but without the driver of progress, which is God. And, and, you, and are you tracking with me so far? So there's a, there's a professor of psychiatry from Harvard, Steven Pinker. Has anybody heard of him? He wrote a book back in 2018 called Enlightenment Now. And uh, Pinker uh, expresses interest and his excitement for all the progress that the world was going through, especially in recent years. And he said, there's some amazing things happening. And he's right. He talks about the increases in life expectancy we see in the world, lower infant mortality, strides in the area of, of, of cancer research, uh, of health, uh, global wealth. Um, you know, our world is a lot richer than it ever was in the past. More people, I mean, there's fewer people that are, that are extremely poor than there were 100 years ago. He talks about, you know, the growth in the area of rights and education and other measurements in society. And so Pinker would argue that society was trending. It was progressing in the right direction. And yet he's an atheist. Pinker is an atheist. But he can't help himself. It's funny. I, and I love listening to atheists sometimes because they can't help themselves. When they get excited, they, 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 their language often flows into, it sounds quite biblical. <laughs> And so he talks about this one technology where you, dis where you could dismantle nuclear weapons and make it into green energy. And he says, this is a literal, this is a literal example of beating plowshares or beating um, swords into plowshares. And he says, you know, there's a growing realization in our world as, as, as things get progress, as, as things get better, there's a growing realization that Every life is sacred. Notice the language. This is an atheist talking about the sacredness of life. Now, we can always ask that question. <laughs> okay, hang on. Where do you get this idea of the sanctity of life? Where do you get the idea that our world is progressing or it ought to progress? Well, I say this is a Christian hangover, a Christian influence. And then Pinker, at one point, he asks a question. He says, does justice roll on like a river? Righteousness like a mighty stream? <laughs> like he's quoting scripture. And then he says, yes, it does. Because look how racism, sexism, homophobia, and everything are on decline in the world. This is real progress. And to guys like Pinker, progress is a reality. It's the way things are. It's how time works. In many ways, it's a, it's a liberal vision of the world. And even though he borrows Christian language, he, he nevertheless views progress as something that's just self-evident, that's woven into time, and it's just the way things are. Things will progress. He never, never in, invokes the idea of God, but this is just something, this is the air that we breathe. But where does this modern idea that things are inevitably and independently progressing, where does it come from? Okay, so the question I want to ask and I want to dive into a little bit is where does the idea of progress, the modern idea of progress as independent of God, where does this idea come from? Because it's strong. I think it's very strong within our world. Where does it come from? Do you know where it comes from? This is the fun part. It's always fun to figure out where ideas come from. Um, it primarily comes from ideas and thinkers in the 19th century. Though, and I'll talk about that in a second, but I actually think it starts, it starts with a fellow named Rene Descartes. Does anybody know Rene Descartes? Yeah? You guys know René Descartes? 
Yeah. His famous line, I think therefore I am. And I know about three jokes, but I won't say them because I always say them whenever. Um, now, okay, so not to spend too much time, but Rene Descartes lived in the, um, in the 16th century. Um, well, late 16th century, early 17th century. And uh, we always, we know Descartes' idea of this, I think, therefore I am. But do you know what Descartes did? He was a philosopher. He says, let's pretend we can't know anything. What can we know for sure? Well, I'm thinking, therefore I know I exist. That's, that's basically what he's doing. He's like, let's say we can't know anything, so what can we know? <laughs> but you have to realize, the assumption for much of history was all knowledge was found in the past. And Descartes says, let's say we can't know anything. And in one move, he basically dismissed the past as a source of knowledge. He says, what can I know? Well, I know that I'm thinking and therefore I am. And he kind of moves forward. So I think Descartes a really influential guy. But there's some really key thinkers in the 19th century that come along. One guy is Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin, um, he was the, uh, who is Charles Darwin? The father of evolution in a way, yeah, for the most part. And he's the guy who coined the phrase survival of the fitter, actually. The fitter, yeah, not the fittest. That comes from somebody else. But he did say, you know, that, but the idea of survival of the fitter Underlying that is this idea of evolutionary progress. The species progress. They progress from very simple um, states to more complex states. So there is a progress. Okay? The other guy who's quite influential is a fellow named Herbert Spencer. And Spencer is the one who takes Darwin's ideas and he talks about survival of the fittest. He applies Darwin's ideas to, to society. And he says, all of society is progressing. And he talked about how can we make a society that can progress into a very strong society, which is a very dangerous philosophy. But Spencer is quite influential in the 19th century. Another guy is a guy named Jörg Hegel. And Hegel talks about not God as we know God, like a a good God who reveals himself, but more of a thing or a force that runs through history. And so the, the spirit is going through history and all of history is progressing to this final point. And the final point, the ideal society, happens to look like a 19th century German society. <laughs> he was German, right? That's, that's Hegel. Guy like Karl Marx comes along, takes Hegel's idea, and he says, no, no, let's look at all of history, how it's moving towards this final state through a series of revolutions, through this, you know, clashing of classes, and the final stage will be communism. And so the world is progressing to this place, this utopian place of communism. Now, somebody told me that in the, in the, in the uh, graveyard that <laughs> Herbert Spencer's grave and Karl Marx's grave are close to each other. And I had a professor once put a Marx and Spencer bag in between the two. Anyhow. The other guy we look at is Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud talked about psychological progress. So long as we can deal with the issues with our mums. Um, of our mums, yeah. And so the therapist in, in Sigmund Freud's reasoning uh, has become the new priest in society, helping people progress through the inner obstacles of mental health to becoming a healthy person. So these are just some of the guys, but these guys are all around the 19th century. And so this idea of progress, that the world is getting better, really comes out of this time period. That society is progressing Now, uh, not, not surprisingly, a lot of these ideas have Christian echoes, don't they? Um, I mean, look at Marx. What does Marx say? Marx, Marx's idea is that of communism, right? Karl Marx, I, you know, when I, was, when I was an atheist, I was actually a Marxist. So I read lots of Karl Marx. And Marx was everything. Like, he was like, everybody, I would be sitting around 
drinking wine with other Marxists, talking about the revolution and when the revolution is going to happen and our world is going to become finally communist. You know, um, I mean that was that was that's what we did, right? We were. I went to York University in the 80s. You had to be a Marxist. It was it was mandatory uh, in political science. And Marx, um, you know Marx. Marx. I mean, he he was didn't believe in God. He was he was from what I. My understanding is uh, he was an atheist, um, and and he didn't think very highly of Christianity. What did he say re Christianity and religion was? Does anybody know? The opiate of the masses. Oh, I can hear some. Well done. Yeah, that you know, religion or Christianity just exists to drug normal people so that they don't see the problems with the world. So Marx said he's not a friend of Christianity. But what's his conclusion? He says, all of history is moving towards what? We're all progressing to communism. And in communism, nobody will own anything. Right? From each according to their ability to each according to their need. Does this idea sound familiar? Yeah, Acts 4.32. No one claimed that they had any of the possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. So even Marx, I mean, he's, he's, the air that he breathed is still, is still Christian, right? And yeah, it's not a big surprise. A lot of Christians have been drawn to socialism and Marxism over the years. Because the Bible does teach that God will lift up the downtrodden, right? That God will humble the rich and the powerful. And communism said, well, yeah, I mean, there will be this leveling that takes place. But you have to get this. You want to know the difference? The difference between the world's understanding of progress and the biblical understanding of progress? Do you want to know what the difference is? The biblical understanding of progress is this, is that if there's any leveling, it is God who does the leveling. If you remove God from the equation and you still have this idea of progress and this, you know, in this case, this, this idea of a level society or, or a society that's progressing and looking like this, like or Herbert Spencer's view of the, of the perfect pure society or whatever that happens to look like. If you remove God from the equation and you still have progress, do you know what you end up with? The 20th century. And do you know what you have in the 20th century? You have more people who died violently in the 20th century than all the human beings who ever died violently before the 20th century combined. The 20th century is the most bloody century in the history of humanity. Do you know that? in the name of progress. This is what uh, Glenn Scribner, what he writes, he says, whether left-wing or right-wing, whether communist or fascist, if we're only working on the horizontal plane, we're not bringing God into the equation, then belief in progress can become a license to make history in whatever way we choose. Without a pole star above us, we can take matters into our own hands, forging our own path and calling it historical inevitability. And that is why one of the main reasons why the century of progress was followed by an unparalleled century of violence. World War I, 20 million people died. Now, I keep hearing Stalin's comment. Stalin says one person dies, that's a tragedy. 20 million people die, it's a statistic. Because you can't even get your heads around 20 million. I can't get my head around 20 million. What is 20 million? World War II, 75 million dead. The Russian Revolution in 1917, 10 million in the Civil War. Stalin's Great Purge in 1934 to 1936, one million people. More people were executed by Stalin each week than the Spanish Inquisition killed in 350 years altogether. 
Stalin's organized starvation of Ukraine. 10 million people. China's great leap forward. China is going to jump into modern day in this great, amazing leap forward, 1958 to 1962. 45 million people were either beaten, starved, or worked to death. Do you know that? I remember I had students talking to me about, um, they were saying with their dads and their moms, uh, they would remember this time period. And they would remember that um, on the news, you would see a train that was full of food in China. And the news report was, China is progressing so quickly. By changing our farming system, we are progressing and we are advancing beyond anyone else. Look at all this food. And apparently it was one train moved around the country filled with food and by the by the end they said the food was rotting and it was just, it was all a facade meanwhile 45 million people died in china's cultural revolution at least two million people died i've heard more but i looked it up and i said two but see these are a try oh okay well i know i didn't put down the killing fields in Cambodia, 1975 to 1978, one-third of the entire population of Cambodia was killed. In this tremendous act of progress where, 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 where the society would accelerate to communism, and one of the ways you would do that is by ensuring that those who could read and those who are intellectual, who obviously are connected to the wrong class, were killed or thrown into the countryside. Cambodia had a population of 6 million. By 1978, it had a population of 4 million. It's a small country. You can go on and on and on. And all these atrocities were done in the name of progress. Now, there's one more story of progress that I've failed to mention. And it goes by the infamous name Auschwitz. And I think the darkest chapter of progress is found in and through the leadership of Adolf Hitler. Now, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to linger here for a moment in, in Nazi Germany for a moment, because I want to show you how this understanding of progress has played out and, and just just its ramifications. So you, you, hopefully you'll, it'll be clear by, by the time I'm, I'm done. Um, some people say that what Hitler carried out, he carried out in the name of Christianity. Have you ever heard people say that? Yeah. Yeah, that's absolute rubbish. Just, just so you know. Uh, we need to see this very clearly. Hitler did, on countless occasions, talk about Jesus and Christianity. But the Christianity that Hitler envisioned had nothing to, to do with what constitutes Christianity. Actually, Christianity, as, as, as it truly is, had no place in Hitler's vision for the future. This is what Hitler said about, about the faith. He says, the filthy reptile Christianity raises its head whenever there is a sign of weakness in the state, and therefore it must be stamped on. We have no sort of use for a fairy story invented by the Jews. And to, to Hitler, the Jews, and particularly Paul in the New Testament, had introduced a faith that was a deliberate lie and so these ideas of equality, compassion, humility had no place in Hitler's ideology. What drove Hitler more was probably ideas of Spencer, Darwin, and, uh, and Nietzsche. Hitler saw all of nature, quote, is a violent struggle between strength and weakness, an eternal victory of the strong over the weak. And so even though Hitler used language that sounded Christian, his view um, of Christianity had little resemblance to true Christianity. 
In fact, he says this. He says, my feeling as a Christian points me to my Lord and my Savior as a fighter. This is who Jesus is. He's a fighter. It points me to the man who, once in loneliness, surrounded only by a few followers, recognized these Jews for what they were and summoned men to fight against them, and who, God's truth, was greatest not as a sufferer but as a fighter. That's who Jesus is. In boundless love as a Christian and as a man, I read through the passages which tell us, tells us how the Lord at last rose in his might and seized the whip to drive out the temple the brood of vipers and adders. How terrific was his fight against the Jewish poison. Nowhere does he point out the fact that Jesus was Jewish. In fact, they had to, that was a problem. <laughs> that was a problem. And historians like John Conway and others have pointed out the occult influence upon Hitler. He drew most of his inspiration for Nazism in places other than the Christian faith. He drew a lot from uh, Richard Wagner. And so Nazism actually emerges as a, it's like a religious movement with its own understanding of, of, of a savior. The savior was very different from, the, from what the Bible taught. To the Nazis, the Old Testament was not canonical, it's not authoritative, because it was too Jewish. And there was, there was a, a fellow that worked on the Psalms and tried to change the Psalms, and he did change the Psalms to make them more militant and less Jewish. There was a fellow named Walter Grunman who argued that Jesus actually was not Jewish. He came from Persia, and he was an Aryan. He was white. And so you had to tear up the Old Testament, and you had to get rid of most of the New Testament in order to somehow make Jesus fit this Nazi ideology. But the problem is, is even when, when all was said and done, you still have the beginnings of the word of the book of Matthew, which says, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Ah! And so to remove Jewish references from the Bible was almost an impossible task, but they kept trying. I mean, Paul's writing where he says, in Christ, there's neither Greek nor Jew. They're like, would, they couldn't stand that. In the end, Jesus, in the, in the Nazi idea, was a Germanic hero. He wasn't Jewish. He was from pure Aryan blood that would cleanse Germany. To re so Germany would rediscover itself as a nation, a race of heroes living in a sanctified world. And so, in Nazism, the progress, history was progressing, yes, but what was history progressing? It was progressing to a place where Germany was destined to run the world and therefore needed living space, Lebensraum, which is to the east of Germany. The progress of history is a place where the Jews were the source of all modern evil in Hitler's eyes and needed it to be eliminated. This idea of progress in Nazism is a place where Christianity was revised to change the very person and character of Christ. What is love, according to uh, a Nazi bishop in 1939? What is real Christian love? Real Christian love is, quote, it has a hard warrior-like face. It hates everything soft and weak because it knows that all life can only then remain healthy and fit for life when everything is antagonistic to life. The rotten and the indecent is cleared out of the way and destroyed. That's what love is. The church was a place where real men and real women would breed a stronger race. And this is the influence of eugenics. This idea you, 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 you get rid of, you, you, um, you sterilize or you kill those who are weak in society so that your society will be strong. And so you, you make, you know, mixed marriages illegal. You make, um, you know, um, you, you exterminate the Jews. You, you get rid of the gypsies and you introduce blood purity laws. Now, this idea of eugenics and making society stronger, we were like, oh, where does this, you know, what were these Nazis thinking? You know where these ideas came from? Policies in Canada and the United States. Just so you know. 
The German Christian movement declared in 1942, the year that two million Jews were killed, we are not unacquainted with Christian love and the obligation to the helpless, but we demand that the nation be protected from the feckless and the inferior. Wow. Now, just to be fair on this one, where did, uh, who, who gave ammunition to the Nazis in this whole process is some of the writings of Martin Luther. Right? Some of the writings of Martin Luther were discovered. These writings were not really well known, but they were rediscovered by the Nazis, and they were very harsh towards the Jews. And so it's a reminder that we said at the beginning of class, there's no heroes in this story except for Jesus, right? Now, why did I just tell you about the Nazis? There's a reason why. Actually, there's two reasons. One, it's this horizontal view of progress that really shaped Nazi ideology that we can, without God, we can remake society and make it strong. Secondly, is that after Auschwitz was discovered, this had a huge impact on the rest of the 20th century. It had a huge impact on the rest of the 20th century and how progress was understood. See, after the atrocities were discovered, after the atrocities of the first four decades of the century, especially Auschwitz, were discovered, um, leaders like Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt, they signed what was known as the Atlantic Charter, and they mapped out what the future was going to look like after Hitler was defeated. And what did they say? They said the world was going to be a world where there would be faith in life, liberty, independence, and religious freedom, and the preservation of human rights and justice. He said, that's the world that we want. And when Auschwitz was discovered and the depth of Nazi evil was revealed, what people discovered was just how dark, how evil, and how cruel human beings can be towards one another. I mean, this was a whole new level. And this one historian, Alec Ryrie, he summarized how the world began to look at human rights following World War II. And he says, the world's attitude towards human rights was summarized by the line by Indiana Jones. Nazis, I hate these guys. <laughs> and so after the war, there had to be a standard by which we, the people would say, look at what these Nazis did. Look at Auschwitz. Look what happened. There had to be a standard to say how evil this was. But let me ask you this. On what basis could one declare that what happened at Auschwitz was so evil? On what basis was, was what was done so evil? Sorry? Yeah, but like, it, it, well, yeah, we can base on the Bible, right? Because, you know, the Bible says human beings matter and those sorts of things. And you know what, that argument, you know, it's, it's a violation of the Ten Commandments. It's a violation of the teaching of Scripture. It's a violation of God's revelation uh, to his world about the Imago Dei, the image of Godness and the sacredness of every human life. We could say that. People could have said that 300 years earlier and people would be like, yes, but not in the 20th century. Because they're trying to talk about progress, but God really isn't part of the, pro, uh, the, 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 the conversation anymore. So on what basis could you look at what took place in Auschwitz and, and, and condemn it? On what basis could you do that without invoking God? Just an opinion, yeah, yeah, just an opinion, yeah. A shared opinion, because everybody would say yes. But on what, what, what argument would you use? Chris, what argument would you use? Yeah. 
Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I'll tell you what argument was made. Because uh, you had to come up. Because everybody said what, was what they saw was wrong. And that's our conscience. Like we see this is, this is certainly evil. And everybody was shocked. But without God in the equation, this is going to be difficult. And so you know what they did is in the Nuremberg trials, and when they were, when they were convicting Nazis after the war, they had to accuse them of some violation. And do you know what the violation was? Crimes against humanity. These are crimes against humanity. This kind of action is a crime against humanity. And that became the language. And it's still the language today. His argument said, you know, Putin should be arrested International Tribune have, has, has convicted him of perp um, um, perpetuating crimes against humanity. Now we need to pay attention to this. It's not God who's going to judge that this was evil. Who is judging that this is evil? Humanity. Humanity is proclaiming what constitutes a crime against humanity. But do you see the problem? What do we mean by humanity? And how do we reconcile the fact that the crimes against humanity were carried out by humanity? I mean, humanity could insist, they could say, um, I mean, what, what if humanity says, what if humanity decided that it is logical and it is right that the strong dominate the weak? As Darwin, Spencer, Nietzsche, and some of those guys would say. What if humanity made that decision? then why should, why should it be an issue if a master race dominates an inf a perceived inferior race? On what basis is this wrong? What if, if humanity says this is okay, then on what basis do you say it's wrong? See, if you remove theology from anthropology, <laughs> what's left? This is what T.S. Eliot says. He says, if you remove from the word, from the world, uh, from the word human, all that belief in the supernatural is given to man, you can view him finally as no more than an extremely clever, adaptable, and mischievous little animal. <laughs> and if we're all just animals, on what basis is Nazism wrong? So this is a situation that we find ourselves. Are you guys tracking with me on this? Hopefully, for the most part. Hopefully it'll all make sense in a moment. This is what uh, Glenn Scrivener says. He says, what we've done, largely without realizing it, has been to clamber up on a stack of Bibles and pronounce the verdict with all the gravity of two millennia of Christian history. But if anyone asks what we're standing on, <laughs> we obscure the foundations. We make transcendent claims for humanities and because this is the chief tactic, point again to the self-evident wickedness of those who oppose human rights. And so what he says, he says, he says, we're actually condemning Auschwitz because of this latent Christian view that is part of the air we breathe. We all know that Auschwitz was wrong because part of the air that we breathe is this Christian understanding that human beings should be treated with dignity. It's there, but we can't say it because nobody believes in God. And so what we say is we just, we say what's well, wrong. It's wrong to treat people that way. Well, but why? Well, look at Auschwitz. Oh yeah, that was really bad. And that's all we got. 
We have a statement, there's a statement in the UN on human rights, and it says we have faith, notice the language of faith, faith in the dignity and worth of the human person and the equal rights of men and women. That's what it says in the UN, that, that there's faith in the dignity and worth of a human uh, person and the equal rights of men and women. But what's the basis of this faith? Do you know what the answer typically is now? We believe in the inherent dignity of every human being. Why? Well, look at the Nazis. That's typically the answer. Look what the Nazis did, because everybody would agree that the Nazis were bad. <laughs> well, even the Nazis. Have you guys ever watched, okay, maybe I shouldn't be joking around, but have you ever watched uh, Mitchell and Webb? Have you ever heard of these guys? Okay, maybe I should. They're this comedic British comedy. And uh, there's this one sketch where they're both standing in the camp, and they're both SS soldiers in the, uh, in, in the Nazi army. And, uh, and they're standing there. And the one guy looks at the, uh, the other leader. He's like, um, can I ask you a question? <laughs> he goes, are we the baddies? <laughs> He goes, no, we're not the baddies. He goes, but we have a skull on our caps. <laughs> and they start realizing that they're actually the bad guys. But in, in, in our world, whenever we, we, we talk about um, something that's wrong, we say, well, look at the Nazis. You don't want what happened under the Nazis to happen again, do you? And so actually the basis for human rights today is this. We do not want to go back to what happened at Auschwitz. So human rights violations are wrong because when you violate human rights, you're not transcending God, you're not transgressing God's law. That's not the conversation. You do not violate human rights because if you violate human rights, do you know what will happen? Go back to the Nazis. You know, this is what happens at Auschwitz. And that's always the argument that's being used now. And so the foundations of human rights is a negative foundation. It's, we need to treat people with dignity because if you don't, you're a Nazi. And, you know, there's something to that, I guess. But what's the source of human rights? We've talked about this before. And so the conversation usually goes something like this. Do you believe in human rights? Naturally. Why? How could you ask that? Are you some kind of Nazi or something? And so now Nazis are the worst thing. They're the worst thing that we must avoid at all costs. Nazism embodies all that is evil in the world. So this is what Tom Holland said, the way he summarizes. He says, he says, we no longer need the devil because we had Hitler. We no longer need hell because we had Auschwitz. And so in our world today, we know what that we don't want. Can everyone please agree that we don't want to be, we don't want to be like the Nazis? Yes, yes, we all agree. Okay, good. Of course, it does get awkward when one's invited to Parliament and everybody stands and cheers for him, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, but it's interesting because everybody got so upset. Why? Well, he was a Nazi. And if you, oh, I mean, we can go on with that, but if you want to discredit somebody in our culture, what do you call them? You call them a Nazi. Or, yeah, or a bigot, <laughs> which is a Nazi, yeah. And so as a society, since World War II, we hold on to the fact that the Nazis are the worst. You want to know what a crime against humanity looks like? Look at the Nazis. But if Nazis are bad, then how do we decide what is good? Just not be like that. Okay, so that's a negative approach. What would be, so what does that mean? What does it mean to not be a Nazi? Well, Nazis were, you know, about the master race and, and superior. So, so um, the opposite of that would be 
to promote inclusion, right? To promote inclusive ideas or, or racial equality would be something that you would emphasize quite a bit, which you, you actually see in our culture today. It's, it's the opposite of being a Nazi. Uh, the Nazis killed off the, 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 the weak and the vulnerable. And so what do we do? What's the opposite of that? Well, we care for the weak and the vulnerable. So the expansion of the state and expansion of the welfare state. And so what are the virtues of our world today? Well, they're anti-Nazi virtues. We talk about fairness. We talk about care. Um, we speak strongly against racism, which is good. We should. But we do that because it's opposite of Nazism, not because of a transcendent understanding of what it means to be human. And so our world today is made up of a type of secularized Christianity. It's, it's Christi Christian ideas, but without the foundation. And is made up of post-war anti-fascism. And so what do we find that matters most in our culture is compassion, equality, diversity, and inclusion. And these are important. But if you have no foundation, if the only reason you're believing this is because they're not Nazi, there's no real foundation to this. And so morality in the West today is being defined negatively. It's interesting. If you talk about morality in the West, it's always defined negatively. And when it's positive, it's usually borrowing from, 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 from a Christian worldview. But usually what it means to be moral in our culture today is not to be like the Nazis. <laughs> now, that's a lot for you guys to take in. What I'd like you to do is around your table is just take a moment and say, okay, what, what questions emerge out of what, what we've just been talking about? What thoughts or what questions or what, <laughs> maybe some of you are like, what in the world was David just talking about for the last hour? Um, just take a moment around your table and just look at what questions come out of what we've looked at so far, okay? So just take a moment. Uh, Mike, you'll pause the thing. So we got it back on, Mike? Yeah, record? Oh, yes, we do. So I can actually look at it, yeah. So let me just say a few words, and then we'll open up uh, to, to a few questions, because I think there's some really, I've been hearing some great questions. So what does true progress actually look like? Let's get back to our, 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 our topic. Um, this past week, I was reading and listening um, to Martin Luther King. And in the face of racism, Martin Luther King Jr. spoke of progress. He spoke of a world that would, that, uh, uh, of a world that would progress to a point where a person would be judged not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. And in April 3rd, 1968, he gave his famous, I've been to the mountaintop speech. And he compared his situation to that of Moses, who had been given a glimpse of the promised land and what lay ahead. And King acknowledged that this idea, this, this, this vision of real progress would not fail. Why? Why? Because it's not about this inevitable progress of time apart from God that the world's going to go through. No. It's because God's kingdom has broken into this world that we know is going to progress. That God's kingdom, where the ground is level at the foot of the cross, a kingdom that is yet to be consummated at the right time, at the Kairos moment, that will culminate with the return of the king, Jesus Christ. This is what Martin Luther King said. He says, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. Now, I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so here's an unshakable belief in true progress. 
What is this progress? It's a progress that is rooted deeply in God's character and his providence. And it's fascinating and tragic that the day after King gave this speech, he was shot. He never saw this dream played out in time. But we know that when our lives are rooted in the person of Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross, that our lives will never be the same again. That we will be transformed and will continue in time to be transformed into Christ's likeness until that day when we stand before our Savior and the lover of our soul. And when we stand before Jesus and he welcomes us into his kingdom, well, then we'll know we've truly made progress, right? So let me uh, close our time in prayer, and then we'll open it up to a, a couple questions. Jesus, we thank you for this vision of progress that uh, Martin Luther King laid out. That our lives will only make sense insofar as they're connected to you. And that we can speak against evil with moral clarity because of what you have revealed to us in your word. You are the author of life. And you are the revealer of what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. And when we align our lives with you, we can walk in confidence. Now we confess, we know that many people in the name, in the name of Jesus did horrible things. Many of them followed uh, guys like Adolf Hitler. We see the writings of, of, of Martin Luther and we, and we see the darkness in our own hearts. And yet, we know of the darkness because you have revealed your light. And so we turn back to you again and again in repentance. And because of the cross, we know that we have been forgiven and set free. On no other basis can we stand. And so we come to the cross. Nothing in our hands we bring, but simply to thy cross we cling. Give us life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.